Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we talked to Robert Brenner and Dylan Riley, who published seven theses on American politics in the latest New Left Review, which is New Left Review 138. It's an analysis of American politics post midterms that's generated a lot of discussion, responses, further articles, and praise. New Left Review summarized their arguments as, quote, Bidenism analyzed as the outcome of a bipartisan lurch towards growthless Keynesianism in a new stage of capitalist accumulation emerging from the long downturn. Classes and class politics redefined in a strikingly original intervention, unquote. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that description, and we're very fortunate to have Dylan Riley and Robert Brenner with us to lay out their arguments when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I've been absent while recovering from surgery and will not be back on a regular basis for a few more months, but I just wanted to be able to do this interview today. In the meantime, the program continues in the able hands of Melissa Figueroa and Alan Minsky. And on today's program, we have Robert Brenner and Dylan Riley with us to analyze the results of the 2022 midterm elections when the expected red wave was, in their words, more like a ripple. The responses to President Biden's State of the Union address on February 7th further show the partisan fault lines that are superficially characterized in cultural terms like identity politics and more. But our guests insist on rigorous class analysis to explain what is often called de-alignment, that Republicans have appealed to part of the working class on racist, nativist, anti-immigrant terms, while Democrats have appealed to what Barbara Ehrenreich and John Ehrenreich called the professional managerial class on the basis of expertise, diversity, and presumably good governance. Furthermore, Brenner and Riley insist that this is about the economy, the economy, stupid, and how the movement or the realignment of voting coalitions of the two parties expresses material interest. What makes Biden's progressivism original is that it puts forward a vast Keynesian expansion in a period when manufacturing profitability and investment are weak, and even the most dynamic sectors of the economy are in crisis, shedding workers and fighting unionization attempts. There's more, and we're going to get our guests' views. Well, I want to first welcome both and introduce both. Dylan Riley is professor of sociology at the University of California in Berkeley. He has written this and many other articles. He's on the editorial committee of New Left Review. His latest book is called Microverses. And before that, he wrote The Civic Foundations of Fascism in Europe. Robert Brenner is an editor of Against the Current and New Left Review. He's a professor emeritus of history and the director of the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History at UCLA and the author of several books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence, Boom and Bubble, Property and Progress, and Merchants and Revolution. He contributed to the debate among Marxists on the transition from feudalism to capitalism. And most importantly, I should say, he's the executive producer of this program. Welcome, Bob Dylan. I should say, really, it's Bob Brenner and Dylan Riley. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I, it's always a pleasure. And we have a lot to do. So I wanted to start basically congratulate you on this. Let's even call it pathbreaking analysis of the current political conjuncture. It's not like you guys are the first that are trying to unpack this, but you do so in such a rigorous way that I've had people say to me after reading it, I wish I could think like that. So congratulations on that, but let's just get into it. And the first question really starts with the economy and your approach to the fact that growth remains low, even though if given uh, the latest job reports and the State of the Union address, things are looking more dynamic now than they did, let's say, months ago. But you say that you're highly skeptical of the boosterism coming out of, say, certain institutes, and it does not preclude periods of growth over periods of specific national economies. But there's little sign 
of anything like the coordinated, mutually reinforcing growth engine that emerged after World War II. And there's a lot there, including, you know, the rise of monopoly, which we can talk about. But there's this obviously because there's still problems of excess capacity, low profitability, and low investment. So let me start with you, Robert Brenner. The economy and the and the spectacular new jobs report, which you know we heard a lot about yesterday. Inflation coming down, historically low rate of unemployment. Let's get your overall take on that first to start with. Yeah, I mean, I think 2022 and this opening month of 2023 are indicative of the condition of the economy and, interestingly, I think, represent for the establishment pretty close to perfection. Because what you have, on the one hand, is pretty rapid growth in now note in terms of the new epoch or the epoch that has been developing for at least uh, several decades, at least back to the 90s. So in a sense, I've talked for a long time myself about the long downturn. After this decade of economy from the last break in the business cycle, which was 2008. So we had a very long business cycle going from 2008 through 2019. And then we've had a new business cycle from 2020 to 2022. And I think the place for us to start is that the results have been almost too good for the establishment because (laughs) jobs have been you know, as I said, the last month would be exemplary, but the last year would also be. You have quite decent or excellent job growth, but on the other hand, very limited real wage growth, very limited real wage growth. So from the point of view of the political establishment, I would say in vague terms, that is the Goldilocks economy. But I think that what needs to be raised out of that is, does this Goldilocks economy, which has been, you know, you could say pretty well engineered by the Fed, has that Goldilocks economy with its really quite slowed growth, making it, in my opinion, a further extension of a long downturn, does that cause political issues that for the Biden administration and for the Democrats? Because remember that the Biden administration was stymied on, I don't remember which one, but in a sense, certainly the overall phrase of build back better would characterize it, was stymied by the defection of several Democrats and prevented from going into effect. So I think maybe the place to start would be that the long downturn has actually continued. That is, there's no upward break that occurred between 2008 and 2019, which was the long, long business cycle, or between 2020 and 2022, which is the the new business cycle so far, there's been no break from the long downturn here. And so, in a sense, you're getting what the capitalist class is fairly happy with, growing economy, fast job growth, and really very stagnant wage growth. So the question then becomes, what is the political fallout from this? It's like, is what's great for the establishment going to be problematic for the Biden administration? 
I'm really glad you raised it in that way. And it kind of is a perfect segue to go into the political, maybe we'll call it realignment, dealignment, and everything else. Uh, There's also the other issue, and this is to both of you, and that is to see what the pandemic did to alter the long downturn and to bring about possibilities that did not exist for decades, which means a broad expansion of the role of the government in redistribution through social programs that were necessary when all economic activity was halted and raising expectation on that in that regard, and also even changing the attitudes of workers about conditions of work, facing for the first time a rest from their burnout. Burnout continues, of course, today. So all of those are really important in trying to understand the different political allegiances that we're beginning to see, the shuffling toward MAGA and away from MAGA. So I want to go then to Dylan, because what you've done in this article is to look at the political sociology. And you both offer a far more rigorous class analysis than what we see, of course, in the mainstream press, but in most of the articles that tend to try to go a little bit deeper. And so, Dylan, I'd like you to look at this question of redistribution and how it's affected politically. You would focus then on the Democratic Party, but also on the issue of identity politics and culture war politics that uh, the divide progressives and MAGA and that you insist has a material base. So I'll just let you take that issue. Okay, thanks a lot, Susie. So I want to start, actually, to explain just our point of departure in terms of what we understand as class and what we think about as class politics. And then I want to relate that to these discussions about de-alignment and and the way that that's developed, both in left-wing circles, but also outside the left, even. For example, Michael Lind would be a good example of somebody who's talking about these things. So look, our understanding of class is very strict one in the following way. We understand the working class as that part of the population that is compelled to sell its labor power on a market in order to get a wage because it does not have direct, non-market mediated access to its means of reproduction. Incredibly, actually, you can get a pretty good estimate of who's in the working class just by looking at the U.S. Census. And if you look at basically the number of households who depend on wage income, it's about 80% of the population. And for us, this is the working class. Now, that's very different from the way that the working class is often defined, even in left-wing circles, where criteria such as income or education are invoked to define workers. Often workers are defined as some income level or as people who don't have a college education. The problem with that is that that description of class is not analytically rooted in any understanding of the underlying relations of property or relations of production or however you want to say that. We think that both education and income are important, but they are important primarily as criteria that make distinctions within the working class. That is to say, they define fractions of workers. As a result of that, I think we are both highly skeptical of the notion that the contemporary class structure of capitalist society can be defined in terms of the emergence of a new group, the professional managerial class that you talked about at the beginning, the clerisy, the Brahmins, (laughs) This is not a class. It is a social group, and we need to understand it, but it is not a class really because most of the people who are classified in that way, in fact, are workers in this very simple sense that they must gain a wage in order to survive. It's really, can I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. You could continue because it's really interesting. That implies almost like crudely a class definition based not just sociologically, but politically on attitudes. Which one implies that? I'm saying, you know, like this notion of what defines the working class in terms of education or, yeah, go ahead from there. Yeah. So let me actually extend that because what you see in the current debate about, particularly the debate around identity politics and MAGA politics, Mm -hmm. you see essentially a mutual moralism. 
from the right and also from some sections of, of the left as well, there is a kind of denunciation of the professional managerial class as deficient, snobby, adopting irrelevant this and that, and really failing to embrace the kind of common man or woman. <laughs> On the left, you see, obviously, from kind of the MSNBC left, what you see is a denunciation of the non-college educated as racist, benighted, and denuded of cosmopolitan virtues. These are both idealist explanations. Neither the left nor the right has an actual understanding of what the material interests are of the different fractions of the working class that they are talking about. So it's very important that we understand that there is an actual material foundation to these things so that we don't engage in this politics of moralism that is coming really from both sides. So I think that's ex uh, extremely important. I want to make another point that I think is important in this regard. I would say there are very small parts of the population that, in fact, are basically, they don't have access to the means of production, but they also aren't really working for a wage in the same way. People like tenured professors, for example. <laughs> But they make up, I want to emphasize this, this is a tiny, tiny fraction of the population. According to the U.S. Census data, just a little over 1% of the population has a PhD. And a substantial percentage of that proportion of the population are workers, right? right? Which means that we are talking about if there is such a thing as the clerisy or the professional managerial class or whatever, we're talking about probably less than 1% of the population. So there's been a And it's shrinking, if I could just add to that, because of the new structure of universities that depend on super exploited adjunct labor, not to mention, and this is, I hope you take it up as well, the growing number of college graduates with BAs who are working in jobs that don't require that. So like baristas and all kinds of things. In fact, a lot of them are out there pressing for unions. That's absolutely right. That's a huge point that Dylan was making. Let me emphasize that again, just to say this, what that says, and this is the thing that I think people really should stick in everyone's mind. The idea that we are understanding a class difference by using the criterion of having a bachelor's degree is <laughs> wrong, crazy. It is not rooted in reality, okay? So we should not be thinking about class in terms of education. This is a very, very misleading approach. Now, you might say, but maybe there's a large percentage of the population that owns their own business. But again, the census data doesn't say that, <laughs> That is, according to the census data, only about 11% of households depend on business ownership as their primary source of income. So even the what used to be called in the Marxist kind of discussion, the traditional petty bourgeoisie, this is a small fraction of the population. So what that means is that workers... And I just want to emphasize this. The working class constitutes the vast, overwhelming majority of the population in the United States and probably assuredly in the OECD world as a whole. Now, let me make one more point. Workers have a particular relationship to their interests. They can pursue one of two interests and neither one of these is really more fundamental than the other. And this fact about workers is going to become really important when we want to understand the fractions of the working class. Workers have a peculiar status. They are both lack access to the means of production and they must sell their labor power for a wage. But they are also owners of the commodity, the special commodity, labor power which means that they can pursue their interests either as petty proprietors of labor power, that is to say, they can seek to pursue strategies in which they increase the returns on that special commodity that is theirs, 
or they can pursue their interests as an exploited group under capitalism. They can pursue their interests as a class. Now, the Mm -hmm. thing that we need to understand is that these two ways of pursuing interests under capitalism are both quite rational. And sometimes it may be most rational to pursue one's interests as the owners of special commodity labor power. How do workers do that? That typical strategy that workers have deployed to increase the returns on their special commodity labor power entail essentially trying to make their commodity more valuable or more scarce than other groups of workers. Now, that process is typically pursued through a process that the great sociologist Max Weber called social closure. And that could happen on a number of different bases. It can happen on the basis of race, ethnicity, nationality, citizenship, or credentialing. And it is pervasive. The point that we would want to make is that when a class strategy is unavailable to workers, it is not that workers abandon their material interests. They pursue their material interests in other ways. They pursue their material interests in status group ways. And that pursuit of material interests in that way tends to fragment and fracture the broad working class. And that is the basis for the main fragmentation that we see or that we argue that is really characterizing the MAGA politics versus, you know, what we could call what is called PMC politics rather incorrectly. That is a status group conflict around competing bases of social closure. So just as a starting point, I think that's where we are in terms of our political sociology. I I think, Dylan, I think it would help if you went a drop further here and say what you mean by social closure. Yeah. All social closure really means is the drawing of a boundary around some particular type of labor power. For example, let's keep American jobs for Americans or Mm -hmm. let's keep white jobs for white people. But it's also let's make sure that, you know, that our credential is uh, valued, you know, by excluding those who don't have credentials, Uh, those kind of things. These are all mechanisms of social closure. They are all ways of restricting entry into particular segments of the labor market. I mean, Edna Bonasich talked about this, right, back in the 1970s. She -hmm. talked about when she was talking about the idea of split labor markets. This was basically what she was talking about. She was talking about the way that workers are pursuing strategies on the basis of protecting and increasing the returns on their particular commodity, that is to say labor power. That doesn't make them any less workers, And it doesn't, in particular, mean that they're pursuing strategies that are irrational. These strategies have a material foundation. And I think that's the starting point for our understanding of the particularly status group type politics that we see as characterizing American society today. Let me take this one step further, just one little step further, and then I'll turn it over. And we're going to be talking about this as we go forward. But we understand the contemporary period as one of an increasing politicization of the economy in the sense that in a period of secular, what you know Larry Summers calls secular stagnation, he may have stolen the idea from your guest, Robert Brenner. I'm not <laughs> sure exactly what the lines of influence here are. In a context like that of low growth, long downturn, increasingly... Capitalists have come to rely on political supports in basically augmenting their returns. This process, it has effects not only on the state and sort of the elites, it also has effects on the possibilities and the way in which workers are likely to pursue their interests under capitalism. Because increasingly it is the case that you could say the kind of class compromise politics that you got in the classic period of the welfare state becomes impossible. And particularly, even though it was never the case that that politics relied very much on redistribution from capital to labor, 
increasingly we have a zero-sum game as growth slows, as politics becomes more relevant to or more important as a basis of returns, the struggle within the working class on status group lines becomes more intense, more vicious, more zero-sum in some ways. And that, we would say, is adding fuel to the fire of this process of working class fragmentation in a structural sense. And let me just emphasize again, this fragmentation is not the result of false consciousness. It is not the result of propaganda. It's not the result of ignorance. It's not the result of Fox News. It is a result of the way in which working class interests are shaped under capitalism. There is this duality that we we need to really understand. There's one thing I want to just add before you come in, Bob Brenner, because I know you have a lot to say about that. But just taking, you know, like historically, we've seen for the last, what, four or five decades, both an employer and a government offensive against organized labor, which has certainly caused the working class in the United States to lose ground. But it's happened elsewhere as well. As you know, you have new uh, manufacturing trends that have moved to China and elsewhere. So you have this large group of what they call left behind. And, you know, it was in this context that Thomas Frank wrote his book about what's the matter with Kansas when he tried to look at how Republicans appealed to this working class on the basis of social issues successfully. And later we got some pushback from that. I remember one article I read from Ohio former car worker saying, no, it's material. You know, they may have went to the Republican Party, but but it wasn't just on these religious or social wedge issues. It was the fact that there was no growth and their jobs were taken away. So that adds a little bit of a historical note to this because we're still trying to get to, in this understanding of class, this new sort of shift where the working class tends to vote MAGA, not all of them, and formerly, you know, Republican, very well-off people have moved to the Democrats. So take it from there, Robert Brenner. Well, the main thing I wanted to be sure came out of Dylan's presentation is the material basis that many workers have or are obliged to have in limiting access to particular goods in the economy so that they could pursue, for example, their interests by organizing on broad lines to fight strikes or class struggle. But what we're saying, and I don't think it's terribly controversial, but it needs to be clarified, what is going on is not a shift away from the pursuit of material ends. It's not that people are making a mistake of what they're fighting for. It's that sections within the working class are able to defend themselves only politically, meaning by uh, Mm -hmm. limiting access to certain, most obviously, jobs or wages. But the idea is that instead of seeing fight for material gains is necessarily being at the expense of the capitalists or as a class struggle phenomenon, they are, as Dylan went to some length to clarify, they are nonetheless seeking material advantage by limiting the labor market in certain ways. So you end up most simply, with white male workers limiting access to certain jobs or limiting the fight for wages for those jobs to themselves. So I think the bottom line here is that this is a material struggle and it is in the self-interest of certain workers. But what we insist on is that this implies large sections 
of the working class that cannot take advantage of those opportunities because they are pursued politically through political organization. I hope that clarifies things a little bit. Okay, we're doing a lot of definitional clarification that I think is really, really important. So getting a much better understanding of what the working class really is. And I think we should talk a little bit more about why it is that so many analysts today only see the non-educated worker voting Republican and the educated worker voting Democrat. You started out with that, Dylan, to show how that misses the boat on material interests. And Bob, you just went a little bit further. But I, I think we need even even a little bit more to try to understand this in terms of political alignment. Because, you know, in talking about those who have accepted the Republican appeal to them on the basis of anti-immigrant or racist or nativist politics, that too needs to be understood. And I think that in the essay itself that, and I'm not sure that I remember this exactly, but you talked about going back to the period of Reagan, you know, when the frontal assault on the working class began and there were those who were called the Reagan Democrats who went along to some degree, but they were Democrats. They didn't buy the Republican economic program. And so the question, you know, even now on this so-called political realignment, I, I really need somebody to explain to me like why realignment and dealignment are, are used to explain what's going on. But I think we need further elaboration on these allegiances. Okay. So I would say the first one, I, I wonder if Dylan will agree I believe he will, that the most spectacular example of the kind of pursuit of self-interest through political means, which involves redistribution within the working class, meaning by means of organization within the working class against other sections of the working class, would be the migration of important parts of the uh, white working class to the Republican Party at the time of Trump. It seems to me that the Trump phenomenon, MAGA, is an important part, an attempt by, at that moment, a very creative section of the Republican Party to organize support by precisely this means of political organization and political exclusion. And note, it's always within the working class. And so it seems to me that the Trump initiative at its most dynamic was precisely involving this conjuries of providing gains for white male American workers at the expense of everyone else with the not very hidden subtext of massive tax breaks for the capitalists. So it's simultaneously a very brutal, raw appeal to capital, the rich, the better off. And to make that possible, it's a attempt to politically organize part of the working class precisely along lines that would be coherent with and work alongside that very overwhelming support for capital and the rich, but would provide a basis for a political, i.e. electoral majority, at best, that could secure it. So I think what we've seen in this period is very pro-capitalist politics I mean, blatantly pro-capitalist politics aligned with a sophisticated appeal to a a select section of the working class, meaning white, male, and American. I think that's the constellation that we're talking about, and it might be good to see how that is working in the case of Biden. Uh, So. So one question that I want to raise, and this is not just confined to the U.S. either, this sort of right-wing populism that we've seen get right-wing governments elected. But if it is the case that the disgruntled workers who feel that they may have a better chance supporting MAGA politics based on a position of relative 
privilege versus the immigrants and workers of color, can MAGA deliver on anything there? Because the economic program there is is the very same. So what privileges do they really get from going over to the Republican Party other than a sense of feeling heard, even if nothing comes from feeling heard? So that's one question. Then the other question, you know, because we haven't really talked about Bidenism, which I think we should, is that the way you framed, and Dylan said it first, and you too, about Biden's progressivism and build back better getting derailed, not by Republicans, of course, they none of them voted for it, but right. by the corporate Democrats who are still hold a pretty important and powerful role within the Democratic Party, even though the vast majority of Democrats went along with this new expansion of Biden's Biden, because that's where the country or their base is. Nonetheless, you've still got the further division you know, not just between Republicans and Democrats, but also within the Democratic Party. And you could probably say within the Republicans, too, although the Trump wing seems to have really defeated the rest, except in Congress. <laughs> All right. There's a lot to go on there. And I don't know who wants to pick it up. Right. Dylan? I suppose yeah, that. I mean, I would just say, I think your question is a good one, which is, well, the Republicans just appear to be completely incapable of really delivering on this promise of a really serious right wing. The MAGA agenda is a bit phony in some at some level. I mean, I think that's what you're suggesting. I mean, I do think we'll see. I mean, there is an internal struggle within the Republican Party. And I think that there are figures in the Republican Party. I'm thinking particularly, I suppose, of Josh Hawley. Hawley, right. <laughs> who seriously understand the possibility of really locking in precisely this kind of nativist, but populist politics and, and might try to actually carry that forward. But there's obviously the obstacles that they are facing are, you know, in some ways quite symmetrical to the obstacles that I guess that the social democratic left in the Democratic Party is facing, which Mm -hmm. is that these politics are very difficult to institute to the extent that they require redistribution from capital to labor, even to a section of labor. So Mm -hmm. that I think they're really in a bind there. The other point I wanted to make, and this may be slightly more controversial, but I think it's important to say that I agree with what Bob said, that the most spectacular example of kind of status group identity politics that we've seen was the Trump election. But it should be pointed out that there is a less noxious, but nevertheless sort of parallel form of politics on the center left. That is to say, an appeal to the Democratic coalition, not in class terms, but in terms of identity politics, right? And that that is just as much of a solvent on class politics as its MAGA counterpart. And so, so we could specify that, uh, Dylan. Could you specify who we're talking about here? Well, I'm I'm just thinking about. Let me just be crude, and you, you just think about the Clinton campaign in 2016, and the the That's kind exactly. of completely disingenuous invocation of intersectionality, as opposed to even if we got rid of the problem of the banks, we'd still have to deal with how many women were on the board of directors or whatever whatever it was that she said, right? So the point is that there is really, that these two kinds of politics reflect their parallel to one another, and they are both disintegrative of class politics, and they're also internally related to one another. I was just going to add to that, by the way, because the current uh, application of it is the way that you know, the Supreme Court overreaching and getting rid of abortion has galvanized women and also, right. you know, men. And it did allow the Democrats to gain a lot more uh, support Absolutely. in the midterms because of the organized power of women. So it's a very difficult <laughs> thing, right? And that was a huge part of the Democrats' relatively good night in this last election cycle. But in my view, it did nothing to move American politics toward a class politics. If anything, it kind of reinforces the organization of politics within the American working class that we've been talking about. And so that's a reality that I think has to be acknowledged as well. 
Bob, can you take this up? But then also going back to your article, you know, and going back to this issue of the material interests of the working class and the specific political economic condition that we find ourselves in, because I thought one of the strongest points in this article that appeared in New Left Review 138, Seven Theses, was this notion that Biden's post-pandemic or pandemic, the Build Back Better and Inflation Reduction Act expansionary program that sees some redistribution was different than other historical examples of uh, social democratic programs, including the New Deal, because it takes place in a condition of no growth, relatively little investment in manufacturing, no increase in profitability, et cetera. And so, you know, one of your fortes is to always situate this in the current stage of capitalism. And of course, one of the terms that is introduced in this article is political capitalism. And I, so it makes this a different sort of form of Keynesianism, or does it? <laughs> That's a very good question. Leaving aside the labels, I think that what is indicated is the limitation from the start, given the slowed growth of what could be called progressive politics, politics that speaks to, well, here's a, you know that term, progressive politics, uh, whether that's helpful or not, but a politics that allows for speaking to the material interests of working people. And what I mean, I think we're saying is that is really on the margin. And what we saw was Biden making an attempt to carry out something like a politics in the material interests of parts of the working class. Would you say that is right, Dylan. But what was striking was the failure to do it, the inability to do it in this period that even the relatively limited proposals that Biden put forward were cut off at the pass by a combination of Republican unanimity and enough Democrats to prevent it from happening. Is that uh, fair mm-hmm. enough? Yeah, I think that the defeat of Build Back Better was important. And it was something that if it had gone differently, I think it would have mattered. (laughs) This I do believe. I think it was quite substantial. So the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is, to what extent is it really possible to have a politics based on growth? Basically, this is the question. And I think that we are agreed that it is highly unlikely. So what Biden was doing, in a sense, was trying, I think this is what we meant, was trying, in a sense, to rerun a kind of New Deal, great society politics, to some extent, in an environment in which the macroeconomic environment is just not set up. To basically handle that and that we are i think it's it's a hard question to answer because since he actually failed <laughs> what he was trying to do it's a little difficult for us to say what the consequences of that would be but i think both of us are skeptical about its ability to have really restarted the kind of american growth machine and because of that the inability to start the growth machine by the same token, cutting short at the pass attempts to have a progressive politics with some gains for the working class at the expense of capitalists, cutting that off entirely. I think Biden was himself caught by being stuck with a politics of the establishment that was aiming to keep what was to be granted to any section of the working class to prevent any kind of overstepping the slowed growth, the stagnation that has characterized American politics. So it's a kind of, Dylan says, well, Biden himself seemed kind of 
for this and was himself stymied, I would say that that's almost a too good (laughs) instantiation of the social analysis that we're putting forward, that in a period like this, there are just going to be strict political limits to what can be done in redistributive terms. And Biden may well have pushed too far on this in this regard, and in so doing, open the way to Republican gains. What's kind of interesting is that the Republicans did win the midterms, but then were prevented and have been prevented from pushing even further a reactionary or austerity program so that there's like a dynamic reproduction of this austerity politics, even against a Biden who bridles at that because he sees the necessity of going something beyond that to win the votes. This is really kind of where we're at in trying to figure out what's going to happen going forward, because we've had examples where essentially the Democrats were defeated in, uh, quote, any kind of progressive agenda in the last election. But certain Democrats, of course, won. And the Republicans were unable to push their victory at the ballot box into any kind of greater material take back, so to speak, from the working class. Am I I being clear about this? There's sort of a, a political equilibrium at work that's given by the austerity on the one hand and the desire of politicians to break beyond austerity politics. And I think, in a sense, we've seen both the Democrats and the Republicans stymied because the Democrats have been stymied in being able, most Democrats, I should say, have been stymied in putting forward policies that represent gains for workers. But on the other hand, the Republicans have not been able to take advantage of this period for rollback. You know, yeah. I, I wanted to make sure that Dylan spoke on that. So, look, what I think is going on here, I, th- I think Bob put it very well. So basically, the problem is, is that in the era of what we call political capitalism, there's a fundamental contradiction between the legitimacy requirements of the political class and the economic requirements of the social system. That is to say, basically, what is happening is that every politician, both Biden and his Republican opponents, they have to balance, on the one hand, ministering to a capitalism that is increasingly dependent on handouts from the state with their attempt to appeal to voters in material but Mm non-class terms. And so (laughs) this is the dynamic I think that Bob is talking about, which creates a constant churn in the political system, right? And so we're- Exactly. Well, let me just step in because I can't agree with you more and you put it in better terms than I would, but I would just like you to just go back a teeny bit Bob, because our understanding of social democratic programs is that they're always possible in a period of profitability, but that they're cut back in a period of crunch, let's say, of low low rise of profits. And that for the last couple of decades, maybe three decades, you know, there's been this sense that that kind of Keynesian expansion is impossible. The Republicans, of course, have always used military Keynesianism, but it hasn't really helped all that much. So it takes us back to this issue. And one of the things that you've been writing about for the last five, 10 years, Bob, is this upward redistribution of wealth and the, the political access that is required to get that. You know, you've explained it very well on this program and elsewhere, but I think one thing to allude to is the Bernie Sanders campaigns that kind of just said, well, all we need to do is to increase taxes on the wealthy and we can pay for all this stuff. And so I want you to kind of develop that idea, even though, you know, Bernie was defeated, but Biden took up a lot of Bernie's politics in proposing some of these programs. So going back to the question of in this political economic climate, 
can there be this kind of expansion? And I think one final thing to say about that in the State of the Union address, the Republicans, you know, are, are trying to hold the economy hostage on the debt ceiling increase so that they can get cuts in Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security. But those are anathema for their base now. And they had to pretend that that isn't the case. That's the austerity part, I guess, or the continuation of the offensive against labor. And it presents all kinds of difficulties. So all of that taken in, Bob, can you go forward on your analysis of this political economic conjuncture? Uh, just to say that, without repeating myself too much, it's that the period limits what can be provided to the mass of the population, to the working class, if you will. And what that has been, the way to see that is to see that the bottom 60 to 70 percent of the population, which includes I mean, which is all what we would call working class, right? There would be very few people in that rather huge percentage that are not workers. That bottom 60% to 70% corresponding to most of the working class or itself being all working class. The striking thing here is they have been able to get no zero wage growth over the last half century. And so this has meant that for someone like Biden, who has always been very attentive to the needs of the to the ruling class, to say the least, the needs of capital, to say the least, Biden and I think the Democratic Party has wanted to be able to differentiate itself by giving a little bit, by giving some, and and uh, under and that's what they did under this Build Back Better. But I think we would say, and I think this is a good moment to use this, you know, loaded phrase. It is no accident that despite their being able to do electorally better than they might have thought, they're not able. They're not, you know, they're not able to break beyond a basic rules of the game that protect profits in a period of long-term, very slow growth. I want to give Dylan the last word here, um, but I wonder if there's any points that, you know, you think we've failed to kind of address that you would like to bring up. I don't think we failed to address anything, but the, I guess what I would say, I just, I would like to emphasize this idea that as we try to conceptualize what this new era looks like, we propose this notion of political capitalism. And I think we should confront that directly. So what I want to say about that is that this new phase of capitalism is still capitalism <laughs> in the sense that you know, it's based on an orientation to profitability above all. It's a form of capitalism, in my view, that is drawing on a lot of already existing practices and institutions, things like asset price Keynesianism, things like the massive state-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, things like the massive insurance medico complex that essentially use political power to a large extent in order to increase returns. These, of course, things are not themselves new, but it is our suggestion that they are coalescing into a new system, that that system with its extremely politicized nature, is what is really at the basis of this problem that Bob and I are both talking about, which is that the legitimacy requirements of the political system and the economic requirements of the social system are at odds with one another. And so, and because that, of course, differentiates this period from the period of growth in which it really was to an extent true that the interests of General Motors were the interests <laughs> of everybody and particularly the interests of the working class. There was some there was a material foundation to that period. And our point 
is that that period is over. And I think that has extremely important political consequences. The most important consequence that it has is that it forces us to realize that a rerun of classic social democratic politics is not in the cards. This is an important point to emphasize because in a large swath of the Anglo-American left, the default position is we need to rerun the New Deal. And our point is that is both unrealistic and insufficient. And, uh, you know, I think that's what we want to say. That's kind of the bottom line or one of the bottom lines. Dylan, I I want to thank you so much for that. And I know you have to go, but I'm going to let Robert Brenner finish up with your take on what Dylan just said and what the possibilities are. Not forgetting to let the listeners know that we are discussing your article called Seven Theses on American Politics, supposedly an analysis of the midterms, but just so much more than just the midterms and describing a process that is unfinished and in process of becoming in terms of, you know, these political alignments and dealignments. But Bob, what do you think about the way that Dylan just characterized the non-possibility of a return to the kind of New Deal and the, the proposals, let's say, that Bidenism represents? Well, thank you. Um, I gotta go. Thank you. I mean, I just end by kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's of what Dylan was saying and why we are both asserting that major change has taken place and that it is, however, within capitalism, not to capitalism. The phrase political capitalism, which we have used and are probably intending to use even more, has the danger of implying that we're talking about a phase that has gone beyond capitalism, whether in a progressive or regressive way. And we're not contending that there is a phase that has gone beyond capitalism. We're saying that the system has been and continues to be politically organized through the mostly by you know means of the establishment that is sections of both parties to ensure profitability and had has made at the same time and i think this is what's so interesting and is it means it's just kind of a start of a discussion rather than the end of it it has meant that we have the expected limits that go to the payoff to most of the population by political means But also, I think, the important and expanded role, not maybe completely new, we're continually told, well, what we're talking about is not completely new. It is still capitalist. It seems to me, I just, and this is the, you know, we'll leave it here because I don't think I can end the discussion. But in talking about something like asset price Keynesianism, in talking about the way in which the Federal Reserve over the last decade or more, two two to three decades, has been mobilized precisely to carry out the precision needed in maintaining austerity but preventing a rollback that would be politically very difficult to sustain. I think that's essentially where we've been. That is, it is why the Federal Reserve has taken on this very expanded role, almost a centralizing role, enforcing austerity, but limiting the degree to which it will be put into effect. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But again, there are questions that I'll want to take up in future programs. One, you know, because I often cover labor is the uptick in labor mobilization challenging, you know, coming out of this expectant demand that was from the pandemic and even before, and you get new huge struggles of the working class that so far 
have not been entirely successful, but they're not going to stop. So it's a really interesting conjuncture that we're in. And I just want to thank you both so much for the article and for the analysis and really for the kind of return to basics on understanding what is class, how is it defined, what is this political realignment and dealignment really about, and getting past kind of the superficial characterizations that we often see from the pundits that don't even touch those questions. So I want to thank you both for joining us today and encourage the listeners to go to newleftreview.org where you can read this article for free. And it's called Seven Theses on American Politics by Robert Brenner and Dylan Riley. And let me just tell the listeners one final time. Dylan Riley is a professor of sociology in Berkeley at UC Berkeley. He's on the editorial committee of New Left Review, and his latest book is Microverses. Robert Brenner is not only producer, executive producer of this program, he's an editor of Against the Current and New Left Review and has numerous books and articles. Some of the books include The Economics of Global Turbulence, Boom in the Bubble, Property and Progress. Just Google him and you'll find him. But most importantly, we're getting a Marxist take on the political economic conjuncture. And I'm very glad of that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>